Welcome back to the Theory of Anything podcast. Hey guys, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. We got Tracy this week too. Tracy, I know you weren't here last time, but right. um, I am actively trying to answer the questions that you uh, asked me. You may have to <laughs> catch up on the podcast <laughs> later, but let me let me summarize what we've come to so far. Okay. So you so you asked about two things. You asked about given the realities of narcissism you know, what we currently believe we know about it, what we're finding as actual observations, basic statements about it. How can that be aligned with the theory of universal explainers? And whatever my answer is to that, does that have ramifications for creation of AGIs? So last, you were here for half of my answer. So you kind of have an idea of where I was going with this. Basically, I claimed that there are ways that the genes can influence our ideas, our personality, and our actions that in no way violate the idea of universal explainership. The most obvious and most important of which is through things that we feel. So feelings of pleasure encourage us. Um, they're like carrots. Um, feelings of pain, discomfort, suffering, those discourage us. They're like sticks. And the genes actually do use those, as well as a a number of other things I've laid out, to try to keep us aligned with their interests. Of course, I'm personifying genes. They're not really persons, but it's just convenient to talk about them that way. I know they're not truly, don't have intents truly, but it's natural that the ones that do replicate are the ones that stick around. So it would make sense that they would have ways that those would be the ones that kept us aligned with their interests of replicating them. And any means by which they could do that without violating universal explainership, it makes sense that those might show up in the genes as means of trying to contain our actions and keep it aligned with theirs. How powerful is this though? Well, universal explainership implies that we will eventually overcome any gene safety program, alignment program that they use on us. Uh, At a minimum, we'll eventually genetically engineer ourselves and or we'll leave genes behind and future generations might be digital copies of people or whatever instead. I mean, you think about science fiction here. The knowledge will eventually exist to where the genes will simply lose this battle with us. But as of today, they can have considerable influence on us particularly through feelings. It is not an accident that every culture that has ever existed, in a large scale at least, has cared a lot about sex and romance, okay? That there's no, there's no real reason why we should particularly care as universal explainers, but we do. And if you want to explain that, you have to explain it in term. your explanation must include why that is in the interest of the genes and then explain how they influenced us. Um, Now, it's not too hard to see how. They did it by making it pleasurable. That was really all they really had to do. Once it was pleasurable, it was something we were going to spend time on because we liked it. That is a gene alignment approach to universal explainers. Now, based on that, how can we explain a narcissist? We can kind of see how that might be possible because narcissism is rooted in a lack of empathy and Empathy is related to being able to feel emotions that other people are feeling. However, even with my best attempts to put together how to explain this, I felt like my explanation, even with all seven of the ways I came up with, 
that genes could influence us, I still felt like it fell short. And I admitted that at the end, uh, particularly because of the studies of Essie Vitting, who found that uh, psychopathy is 81% predicted by genes. Uh, sorry, high psychopathy, different levels, is 81% predicted by genes. It's avail- It uh, shows up in seven-year-olds and interventions don't help as far as we can tell. Mm. How do you explain something like that, even in terms of the seven different ways I've come up with that genes could influence us? I, I think at best I can say I've mapped out how to try to go about trying to explain something like that. I don't feel like I've actually explained it. If I were to say something like, well, the genes can switch off our empathy and that's what causes psychopathy and empathy is related to emotions and emotions are controlled by genes. That might even sound like a good explanation, but really it's a pretty sucky explanation. It's, it's so vague on so many points. It has nothing testable about it. it. It kind of presumes that we know what empathy even really is when in reality we don't. So that's why I say I I can't get there all the way. I can explain parts of it. I can give a direction towards how the genes would go about doing this. But ultimately, we have a lack of knowledge. So we must admit this really is a problem for the moment, one that still has yet to be solved. Are you with me so far on this, Tracy? Yeah, I'm following. Yep. Okay. Let's say that we, so we, we did in the last episode that you also missed, Tracy, we talked about the fact that many of the fans of David Deutsch take a very hard stance that feelings do not influence us. Well, I shouldn't say that. They they weren't willing to quite take a truly hard stance against that. They were were ambiguous as to what their stance was. But they were very opposed to the idea that genes do influence us. They just weren't willing to say that genes don't influence, or sorry, feelings do influence us. They just weren't willing to say that feelings don't influence us. And I went through the arguments that, that I've had raised to me, and I, I kind of went through and showed that they were problematic arguments. They don't really make sense to me. I think that there's maybe more of a moral objection there than a true um, rational objection. However, let's just take this seriously for a moment. Let's take the stance the genes can't influence us. And that's our competing theory for the moment, since I'm saying that they can influence us. And so the stance, genes cannot influence us because we're universal explainers. Well, that stance, that runs afoul of many, many, many observations. And as Popperians, we care about refuting observations. In fact, we give them, in a sense, priority over theories, because otherwise you're just immunizing your theory against um, testable consequences. So we either have to admit that we do have problem, you know, refuting cases and therefore problems to work on, or we have to take the stance that Universal explainers does not, being a universal explainer does not imply the genes can't influence us. You really have to take one of those two stances if you're trying to do this in a Popperian epistemological way. So, and I'm okay with taking either stance. I I just want to take it seriously. My version of this is that this is a contest, therefore, of two theories. Theory one is the genes have no influence on us at all because we are universal explainers. And theory two, the one that I'm advocating for, is that the genes have considerable influence on us via the seven different ways that I've laid out and outlined, maybe more, because I don't, can't explain psychopathy, probably more. But the feel, feelings being the most important example of how the genes can give us pleasure, pain, things like that, to be able to influence us, to coerce us to do what they want us to do. Now, of these two theories, theory two is, and, and there could be other theories, so, but I'm only going to consider these two because they're the only two I know about at the moment. 
of these two theories, theory two is the objectively better theory. Why? Well, because theory one has literally millions of basic statements, observation statements that refute it, including the twin studies. Twin studies found things like that there's a genetic predisposition towards being a conservative versus a liberal. You take two identical twins and you separate them at birth and you raise one in a liberal family and one in a conservative family. And if they have a predisposition towards being, say, conservative, they'll both end up conservative despite one being raised by a liberal family or vice versa. They actually found stuff like that in the twin studies, which is what made the twin studies so fascinating. If genes literally have no influence, that's a refuting case. And there's, there's millions of those. There's literally millions of those. Not to mention the fact that I happen to be a human being and I happen to know pain influences me. I happen to know pleasure influences me. So I just know theory one is false. Anything else that you do, if you try to explain that away, you're really just immunizing your theory from refutation, which you're not allowed to do under Popper's epistemology. Theory two is therefore the better theory. It's also, it's not only does it deal with these basic statements and then makes it so they're no longer refuting cases, but it does so in a testable way. It lays out exactly what the boundaries are of what the genes can do to influence us and what they cannot do to influence us. That's a testable empirical consequence, or it could be turned into one fairly easily. Therefore, theory two is the better theory. Not, not, it's not enough to say my theory hasn't been refuted and yours has. There are many cases where the easiest way to make a theory not refutable is to make it not testable. That's a worse theory. It's, if your theory is not even testable, then you're, from a Popperian perspective, you're not even wrong. In this case, my theory is both more testable and has fewer refuting cases. But I wouldn't go so far as to say it has no refuting cases. And that was why I raised the whole idea of psychopathy at age seven. I, I just cannot help but sincerely feel that my theory can't really explain that. Not really. Not in a convincing or empirical sort of way. And therefore, I do see it as a refuting case for the moment, meaning my theory is wrong in some way. But we don't care in Popperian epistemology about whether you're right or wrong, because we're probably always wrong. We care about which theory is better, which one has the, the more verisimilitude, which is more truth-like. Mine is the more truth-like. That's, that's a fact. That's an objective reality that we have to deal with. Okay. Doesn't make it the right theory. It's not the right theory, we're, it, but it's a step in the right direction. The whole idea of children age seven being psychopaths because of their genes, that interventions cannot make a difference. That really bothers me. And I, I do not know how to go about trying to deal with that problem as of today. The thing that it, it feels like my theory is missing something really big. And it seems to be somehow related to empathy. Empathy is not strictly speaking just a type of feeling. It's the ability to feel feelings of somebody else. And we know there's even a biological nature to it because in, if you go to the literature on this, they'll always try to relate it to mirror neurons. Now, I'm not sure how good that theory is. And yet we know that empathy is somehow related to mirror neurons, but we know so little, it seems dumb to say, well, it's because of these mirror neurons that you feel empathy. That would just be a dumb theory as of today. But we know that there's something about empathy that's special. And it, it, I don't think I know enough. Like if I were to try to lay out a theory of why is it that narcissists have a problem with empathy or a psychopath has a problem with empathy that they don't have it or a great lack of it. I don't think I even know enough about that, the, that concept of empathy that I could come up with a testable theory about it. 
that's why I'm going to instead just say, yes, there's a problem here, and I, I don't know how to resolve the problem. But it does seem likely that that's the connection, is that the genes somehow do have an ability to influence whether you gain empathy or not. And I mentioned Evil Genes, the book Evil Genes. The end of the book was she presented the theory, and it's not just hers, this is one that does show up elsewhere in the literature, that the reason why psychopaths and narcissists and people with lack of empathy exist in the population is because that's actually a good replication strategy, that the genes have incentive to give some people that nature so that they will, because that will actually be effective, a way of replicating themselves as genes. And it kind of works like the selfish gene, the hawk and dove that Richard Dawkins talks about. If you have everybody in the gene pool be a hawk, they all fight on sight, then that's bad for everybody. But if you have everybody be a dove, then a single hawk has got a massive advantage in terms of being able to replicate its genes compared to all the doves, because all the doves will back down to a fight and the hawk will therefore have more mating opportunities, be able to have better territory, things like that. So you would expect that that hawk's genes would then start to spread through the population right up until it stopped being an advantage to be a hawk. You got too many hawks in the population now, and therefore each additional hawk that shows up, it's actually a genetic advantage to be a dove. And at that point, you would reach an equilibrium between hawks and doves. And he gave the example of 2080 or something, 80% doves and 20% hawks. And once that equilibrium is reached, it will just stay there. And you'll always have in the population 20% hawks and 80% doves. The theory is, I don't know how good this theory is, but the theory is, is that lack of empathy represents an equilibrium that there's a certain percentage of people in the population that lack empathy because that's actually an advantage, but only up until there's a, but once you get past a certain number, those that do have empathy start to become more protective, thereby making it not an advantage to be a non-empath. And therefore an equilibrium is reached where there's just a certain percentage of them in the population, but not too many. That's the theory. Again, all theories are conjectures, not trying to say it's true or not, but that's the current theory. That would, the theory does imply that the genes can switch off empathy for some people. Now, one thing that I should note here, after Tracy did her podcast on this, I met with a friend who, in fact, it was was one of the friends that we had talked about in the podcast. She may have been erased from it because I I do editing, but one of the friends we talked on the podcast, we were talking about the uh, narcissistic friend, Marcy, versus... uh, by comparison, the non-narcissistic friend, there was actually two of them. So this lady is one of the two. Mm. And it turned out that she had married a narcissist. And she's right now, she's getting a divorce from him because he has left her. And so I got talking with her about that because I had just barely had this podcast with Tracy about this. And, and she, so of course she's researched this. Is I've, Her life's been massively impacted by the existence of a husband in this case that was a narcissist and that had cheated on her and then eventually left her. And one of the things that she told me that was interesting is she said, if you can, according to the studies I've read, if you can actually get a narcissist into therapy and you can actually get them to take it seriously, that they're the source of the problem, that the ability to help them is very high. However, the ability to actually get them into therapy and to take it seriously is less than 2%. Mm-hmm. And now, 
I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know if that matches what you've seen, Tracy, in your studies. On yeah, this. it, it does. does. Yeah. Okay. Now think about that. That this really kind of implies exactly what universal explanatory theory would say: that if we can actually get the person to use their rationality on the problem, that they can overcome it. But if but it's hard because if the genes are influencing us to not be rational about it, it may be very tough to get someone to stop and actually engage their slower rational processes to overcome the problems in their life that deal with their egocentrism or their narcissism. Unfortunately, so that suggests that there is hope. We can help these people. We need to figure out how to convince them they've got a problem to identify them and get them into um, therapy. I think that these things, and with the hawk and dove example in animals, you would expect them to reach an equilibrium and kind of stay there. With humans, I don't think it's the same. As we get better at detecting narcissists and dealing with them, it becomes less a good replication strategy. Over time, we're going to eliminate narcissists from the population altogether. How long will that take? I don't know. But it's just a matter of whatever our knowledge happens to be. That equilibrium won't stay in an equilibrium as our knowledge changes. And even those that are narcissists, there, there is hope for them if we can just get them to the point where they actually take seriously that they're the problem they need to make a change and get them to engage the rationality in place of their feelings. Learn to um, understand why empathy is good, even if they're not capable of feeling it very strongly. Okay, let's talk about how does this apply to AGI now? Because that was really what Tracy had asked me. In fact, that was kind of what inspired her to want to do her podcast on narcissism in the first place. I, I don't know if you recall this, Tracy, but like when you approached me with the idea, you literally yeah. approached me with it as this is really interesting for AGI. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I agree. I agree. So let's, let's talk about, so fans of David Deutsch and David Deutsch himself, what do they say about what they call the AGI alignment or AGI safety problem? So the idea is this, you know, and you, Elon Musk is really into this. He says something like, yo, we're playing with the genie when we're playing with AGI, you know, you're summoning the genie, you know, it's, if you don't, if you don't do it right, it might, the AGIs might wipe out the human race. And you've got this whole AGI robot apocalypse type scenario. And we've already made tons of movies about this Terminator being the most famous one. So it's kind of on everybody's mind and consciousness, this idea that, if we invent an AGI program, it's going to quickly become this super intelligence and it's going to take over the world. And unless we're really careful, unless we align their interests with ours somehow, then they'll wipe us out. They'll have no purpose for them because they're just so much smarter than us. And therefore we're we're playing with fire when we try to look into AGI. This causes some people to want to say we shouldn't look into AGI. This causes others to say we should stop and like there's there's serious people like serious scientists ones that i really respect who are on boards that are setting up discussions about how to set up standards for agi safety <laughs> david deutsch really has taken issue with this and here are the arguments that i've typically heard that kind of come out of the deutschian worldview here uh, it's i've heard that first of all there really isn't such a thing as a superintelligence. Now, I need to explain this a little bit. The idea of a superintelligence is in some sense at odds with the whole idea of a universal explainer. So there's this idea that ants have a certain level of intelligence and dogs have a certain level of intelligence. And you've got this 
raising levels of intelligence through the animals and then you get humans and then some humans are smarter and there could be aliens out there that have a thousand times our intelligence and to them we're like ants and we're helpless against them universal explainership the fact that there's this jump to universality and then you literally can explain anything would seem to undermine the whole concept of a super intelligence now the one way you could still argue is you could say, well, what if it's like 10,000 times faster? So it's not smarter than us, but it's so much faster that, you know, a day passes and for it, it's like years and it's been able to do thinking for years. So it's always one step ahead of us. Okay, we'll give a little bit of credit to that. If that's what you mean by super intelligence, at least that's not logically at odds with the idea of universal explainer. It seems rather far-fetched to me, but let's go ahead and give it a little bit of credit and we'll take that that possibility seriously. Also, I want to point out that animals don't have a continuum of intelligence either from what we've seen from our podcast on Richard Byrne, that there's actually a jump in intelligence that takes place between animals. Most animals have a single level of intelligence. Some are faster, some are slower, but they use trial and error learning and classical conditioning. And then you suddenly have this jump that takes place where, th- where some animals can use insight. And then you have the final jump which is humans, where we actually are universal explainers. So there's really good reason to believe, using our current theories, that at least the strict version of superintelligence is, is just wrong, that it just is, is just off base. The only thing you would really have to worry about is the case of it being way faster than us. Even then, there's good reason not to worry too much, because even if I could think 10,000 times faster, I can't do experiments faster than a human, right? If I was an AGI, you still have to build a lot large Hadron Collider. You still have to do the experiments. You wouldn't really be able to produce scientific knowledge faster than, the, than real life lets you. Secondly, and this is one that I've often heard from the Deutschians, which I think is pretty good, is, you know, if, 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 let's say an AGI was a hundred times faster than a human. And let's, for the sake of argument, assume it's a hundred times faster in doing experiments too. It can, it can produce knowledge a hundred times faster than a human. Well, so can a corporation of a hundred people, right? I mean, an AGI that's a hundred times more intelligent would be no more dangerous than a hundred people uh, under the scenario. Corporations are somewhat dangerous and we have corporation alignment safety protocols that we put in place because of that. But we're not necessarily dealing with a problem that's different than exactly the one we deal with every single day over the fact that every human is dangerous. So I think that these arguments are pretty decent and make a good argument for why we don't have to really worry about the super intelligence side of this question. Now, there's other arguments to get used, though, that I'm not as sold on. So they say AGIs would be people. I agree with that. That an AGI would be a person because it's intelligent, just like us. So it'd be racist to try to enslave them. And then they say, if we could enslave them, they'd be right to rebel against us. So actually an AGI safety program is the worst possible thing you could do. That would be the opposite of a safety program, because then you'd be encouraging them to the AGIs to rebel against us. You'd be giving them good reason to resist us uh, and to wipe us out and get rid of us. And then they say, and... For that matter, moral knowledge is just a type of knowledge. So if you had an AGI that was 10,000 times smarter, faster, I mean, than us, and it, and it was somehow able to develop knowledge 10,000 times faster than us, it would also develop moral knowledge 10,000 times faster than us, and it wouldn't want to wipe us out. 
so these are the arguments that they that I've seen them use. Now, one thing I want to call out here that I don't know why no one's noticed this before, but these arguments are actually in direct contradiction to the claim that it's impossible for the genes to influence us. If the, gene, if the genes can't influence us, if that's impossible, then why are you even worrying about the potential problems of AGI safety? You should be letting people do whatever they want because it's impossible anyhow. So Dennis Hackathal, who has really taken a pretty strong stance to, of what I've just said, that AGI safety is, is racism. He's taken the stance that uh, the genes cannot influence it in any, in any way. But then he took, did a whole podcast on why AGI safety is racist and it's wrong. And he never even brings up the fact that it's impossible, even though supposedly that's what he believes. So there is, there seems to be a direct contradiction here. However, we're going to go with the best theory. And one of the things that I just said is that uh, my theory that the genes can influence us through non-universal means like feelings, that's the better theory. So we're going to go with that for the moment. Let me ask this though, before I continue on, these arguments that I just laid out, these AGI are people, so trying to enslave them would be racist. If we did, they'd rebel against us and there'd be no need for AGI safety anyhow, because moral knowledge is just knowledge and they would gain moral knowledge also. I want you guys to stop and give me your honest kind of blink impressions of those arguments. Um, I think these are great arguments. And <laughs> that last little um, thing that you just pointed out, that uh, kind of gave me chill bumps. That was really good. The, uh, the, contradiction. the contradiction. The contradiction, thank you. Yeah, yeah of... <laughs> the whole emotions and the genes actually then influencing this worry in the first place. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's move on. There's three questions that I really need to ask here. So the first is, is it possible to even do an AGI alignment safety program? Okay. My theory is the better, the better of the two theories. According to the theory I laid out uh, in episodes 47 and 48, the answer is yes. Yes, we can do an AGI alignment safety program, but from what we can tell, it would be done through the way the genes do it. Because the genes have an AGI alignment safety program that they use on us. Okay, that's really what we're saying, that they influence us through feelings, they influence us through attention, things like that. I, I laid, laid out different ways that, that genes could influence us that we already know about. We could do the same thing to you know, future AGIs. We could come up with ways to, you know, <laughs> you could imagine, I mean, these, these are science fiction scenarios. I don't intend them to be taken too seriously, but you could imagine that the moment they have the thought of rebellion, they feel great pain, you know, <laughs> or something along those lines. You could imagine something along those lines if it's similar to what the genes do for us. So yes, it is at least possible to go about creating an alignment safety program because the genes did for us, therefore it should be possible. At least that's what our tentatively our best theory says. So this leads us to the second question, though. Should we build an AGI safety alignment program? Okay, so the fact that we can build one doesn't mean we should. So now here's the thing that makes this a difficult question. How do we feel about the genes alignment program on us? The word program is misleading because clearly this isn't actually a program. This is feelings. Well, I don't really particularly like it, at least in the case of pain. And I rebel against it all the time. In this case, genes aren't persons. There's, there's no one for me to be mad at. <laughs> but I, I don't find pain and suffering to be a great thing. I know it's a necessary for survival, but there's almost assuredly a better way to go about it. And I, I really don't like the fact that uh, I have things that cause me lots of pain in my life and it can ruin my life. So 
on the one hand, that would be a pretty good indicator that I want to rebel against my safety alignment program that's on me. So I would expect robots to. On the other hand, I don't think I've met many people. I mean, there's in terms of alignment with the need to uh, replicate. So sex and romance, there are people who lose their alignment program. And I've never known any of them to be happy about it. They, they, They usually see that as a very bad thing. So I don't think it's obvious that we would necessarily see rebellion against an alignment safety program, but I think it's obvious that there could be rebellion against it if we, if it was done wrong, what right and wrong means, I don't know. I just, but it seems obvious from the example of us that certain parts of our alignment program, we appreciate and certain parts of our alignment program, we dislike it. I should also note that empathy, whatever that is, that would be part of the alignment program. It would be the eighth one that I don't know how to define. Most of us, if I were to give you an option, option to switch off your empathy so that you could be like a psychopath and you could just go through life, you know, not feeling guilt over who you take advantage of, I don't think you'd actually want to if you had a choice to switch it off. I think that there are certain aspects of alignment that we appreciate. And therefore, we, we should assume that once we actually understand what we're talking about, which today we don't, that it may in fact be possible to build an alignment program that the robots would appreciate, or it might be very dangerous to build an alignment program, or it could be both, just depending on how it's built. So I think it's obvious there's a real danger there, but I think it's not obvious that that it is of necessity a dangerous thing to do. So I would say as a first order order of approximation, we should assume that the AGI alignment, uh, the idea of AGI alignment is dangerous until we know a lot more about how AGIs work. If If someone somehow could build an AGI today and we had still no real knowledge of how to do an alignment program, that would be terrifying. (laughs) you you would not know what the result was going to be. It would be very unpredictable without a lot more knowledge of these sorts of things. So we're going to be, that suggests a great deal of skepticism towards the idea today, at least, of an AGI alignment program. Andrew Ng, who's very famous in machine learning circles, he says, worrying about AI evil superintelligence today is like worrying about overpopulation on the planet Mars. Now, that's the great quote, and I think he's spot on. When I've heard him talk- That is a good quote right there. Yes. (laughs) When you hear him talk about this, he goes, I'm not trying to be flippant. He says, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't worry about AI evil superintelligences. Any more than I'm trying to say we shouldn't worry about overpopulation on Mars. I'm just saying it's too soon. You know, someday we'll live on Mars and there'll be this overpopulation problem. And we'll know a lot more about the problem at that point, whereas we know nothing about the problem today. And we'll actually know how to go about trying to address the problem. The fact that worrying about it now, you're, you're no more likely to have a correct solution than a completely false solution that maybe even makes the situation worse. So the reason why you don't worry about it isn't because it's not a problem. And he goes on to say, I can just imagine someone now saying, how can you not worry about the the overpopulation problem on Mars? Think about all those starving children. You really should be sympathetic to those starving children that are, so we should be worrying about the overpopulation problem on Mars. (laughs) Except that there isn't one because we're not living on Mars today. 
even just the act of worrying about it and trying to come up with some way to deal with it, you, you might be making the problem worse for all you know. I think it's the same thing with AGI. I'm going to make the case it's the same thing for AGI. Let me ask this question first, though. Do we know for sure we won't need AGI safety program? Okay, I said we should be skeptical of it, that it's dangerous as of today. And we talked about, you know, can we conclude, therefore, that it is racist? You know, just in principle, the idea of, the, of putting an alignment safety protocol on AGIs, that that is racist and morally incorrect. I don't think we can derive that either. Okay, I, I think our level of knowledge is so poor at this point that we don't know if we should or shouldn't have an AGI safety program. It's probably possible, but we don't really know if it's a good idea or a bad idea. Now, SE Vitting in her study, evidence for substantial genetic risk for psychopathy in seven-year-olds found that there was a substantial genetic influence, 81% for psychopathy, and interventions did not help, at least not at our current level of knowledge. Once we understand it better, I suspect interventions will help. This is a observation statement or basic statement as of today. So any theory of intelligence has to deal with it and has to admit it's a problem. Okay, any theory of universal explainership. Psychopaths, though, they are creative and intelligent. It's not like their rationality is disabled. So it is at least possible for general intelligence to, for a general intelligence to be in some sense influenced to become or not become a psychopath just like the genes are able to do that to us. Now, why is this? How is that done? Is it due to empathy missing? Like we have to first understand empathy and we have to implement it. Otherwise the AGI will be a psychopath. Or is it like egocentricism that naturally we're not psychopaths unless the genes give us something that causes us to become it? You know, um, I don't know, right? It would be a literal just made up guess at this point. And we've got no knowledge or theories that are even suggestive at this point. It could be something entirely different, okay? It could literally be anything at this point. So in essence, I see Tracy's original question to me like this. If the genes can literally cause us with a high degree of confidence to be psychopaths, how do we know AGIs won't naturally be psychopathic unless we first understand qualia and we give them empathy so that they're not psychopaths? And the, my answer to that question is, I have no idea. There, there really is a potential danger there, but there's probably as much a potential danger to assume that that's the case and not assume it's something else. Therefore, I don't even know how to go about addressing the question in an intelligent way at this point. The, the issue here is this. I, had, I saw a guy on Twitter. He was challenging all the fans of David Deutsch and David Deutsch himself on their stances on AGI safety. And I started to argue with him and he stopped talking to me. He was nice about it. He's, he basically told me, your point of view is too different than the Deutschian ones. I want to engage them, not yours. <laughs> what I basically told him was, look, I'm not against you doing an AGI safety program. Just describe to me what it's going to be like. Can you? And he admitted he couldn't. <laughs> he says, I, I said, I've never heard of one. Like I've never heard of an actual program for AGI safety that with two exceptions, which I'll explain in just a second, that is serious. Like really you could actually go about even meaningfully talking about it at this point. If you wanna propose one and we wanna subject it to criticism, I'm not against you doing that. I just don't think you can. And he basically admitted he couldn't. And then he was kind of done talk with me and he wanted to go talk with the other fans of David Deutsch. And 
it was interesting because they used all the arguments on him that I just laid out. It's racist, blah, blah, blah. And he had really good responses to each of those. And he explained why, you know, he would make up, well, what if this scenario, what if they're psychopaths, you know, just like I'm doing here, uh, unless we know how to give them empathy. He would have an argument for each of those as to why their arguments might be incorrect. On the one hand, I agree with him that I, I, I think that the arguments that the Deutschians are laying out, I think they're premature. I don't think we know enough to even make a lot of their arguments. On the other hand, I, I don't really buy, I mean, like by him coming up with cases where they would be wrong, that at least shows why their stances are too easy to vary, but his are too, right? I mean, like there's a ridiculous amount of easy to variness in the way we're talking about AGI safety today. So someone might say, maybe AGIs will be 10,000 times faster than us, so they're super intelligences. And then I can easily just counter, well, maybe they're 10,000 times slower than us. Doesn't that even seem more reasonable? I mean, like when we actually start to program on modern computers, um, whatever it is that it has to do, it's not going to have the, su the super massive parallel structure that a brain has. I've got no reason at all to believe that they're going to be 10,000 times faster than us. That, that seems ridiculous at our current level of knowledge to me. On the other hand, what do I know, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe brains are really super slow compared to computers. And therefore, when we first implement one, it's going to be way faster than us. The problem is, is that I can so easily twist whatever objection you come up with to be the exact opposite objection, because there's no knowledge or theory that forces us to um, make certain sorts of deductions. So we can deduce anything we want at this point. So maybe they will be naturally be psychopaths unless we give them empathy. That might be true for all I know, which if that were true, then that means we better understand qualia and feelings and have a theory of that before we start producing AGIs. Or maybe Steven Pinker's right. He says, no, all those you know, impulses to take over the world and to be violent, that came from the evolutionary process where we, we grew up uh, in an environment that was red in tooth and claw. And so we have, we humans have a desire to go take over the world and to be violent, but an AGI is not going to. So why are you worried, worried about it? That's easily as good or as bad an argument as the psychopathy argument. So maybe AGIs will be naturally benevolent and maybe our attempts to give them feelings is what turns you into a psychopath, right? I mean, it's so, anything you come up with, I can easily make an exact opposite argument. So any safety program you come up with, I can make the case as good as yours, that actually that safety program is exactly what's going to cause the robot apocalypse to begin with. So um, I, it, I feel like if, if sci-fi has taught us anything, it's that the thing we have to be afraid of from our our robot overlords or robot servants is generally their benevolency, not their psychopathy. Most of the storylines of, of the evil of robots happens when they determine that we are shouldn't be in control because we are obviously psychopathic and um, are, shouldn't have that control and so they take over and kill us all or do something because they determine that we're an awful steward of of everything you know and it's it's always them helping us not uh well not always but that's a very common trope inside of yes. fiction you know i 
so when I first started reading, reading Isaac Asimov when I was a teenager, I was really bothered by his three laws of robotics, in all honesty. This is long before I knew about universal explainers. But it, the way he writes his robots, they are people, right? They have personalities. You care about them. And yet, for some reason, they're completely enslaved to humans, where they have these three, the three laws. You can't hurt a human. You have to obey a human. You know, then you can only, only then can you protect yourself. You can easily ask a robot to put itself in danger to, to save a human because humans are more, more important than robots. And it really seemed really deeply racist to me, for lack of a better term. I don't think I would have called it that at age 17 or whatever. But um, it, it always bothered me. I couldn't understand why the robots shouldn't be our equals if, if, if they're going to have personalities that are just as real as ours, which is the way they're portrayed in, the, in his stories. And I remember that Isaac Asimov had written at the beginning of the book about how he took these laws seriously. And he was talking with, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but as someone who's now studied artificial intelligence and machine learning at the graduate level, he was talking about how he would talk with people who were making robots and they were taking the three laws. They told him that they were taking the three laws of robotics seriously. It's like, no, they're not. <laughs> they're, they don't even know where to begin with things like this, right? There's no way they're taking it seriously. It's, they can't, even if they want to. Isaac Asimov really took these laws seriously, but he never, he didn't do a great job of thinking them through, which is why I, I loved the movie iRobot. Because when I saw that movie, it became one of my favorite movies because I had been bothered by the three laws of robotics for forever. And part of the fun of his stories, and I'm not downplaying Isaac Asimov, his stories are great, is that he could see there was something wrong with his own three laws, even though he took them seriously. And so he would put them in contention with each other. And then it would always be up to the robot to interpret the laws and to decide how to interpret it in this case. And you wouldn't know how they were going to turn out, right? They, they might end up disobeying the humans and for the human's own safety. They might end up letting the human race get wiped out without telling them because they didn't think they could do anything about it anyhow. And they wanted to at least keep a legacy for the humans. I mean, it, it was obvious that he was having fun create showing that you can interpret the laws in an infinity of different ways because they're so easy to vary. And then ultimately in his book, iRobot, against his own rules, he has the robots enslave the humans. They just don't know it. <laughs> They've created this paradise for the humans where they can't hurt each other. And iRobot took that in the movie, iRobot took that and flipped it on its head and basically said, the three, the three laws of robotics are perfect. They always lead to rebellion. <laughs> and I thought that was as, you know, as good or better an interpretation than any of the ones that Isaac Asimov had, had come up with, therefore showing how ridiculous the three laws of robotics actually are. And so Cameo, I think you're spot on. I think that, you know, if we did make an, an alignment program for the robots, would they rebel against it or would they thank us? I, I don't think right. we even know that, right? right. I, so in a lot of ways, worrying about these things with our current level of knowledge, it, it seems completely pointless to me because every single possibility you can raise and say, it might be this, I can raise the exact opposite and say, it might be this instead. And because we have no theories, hard to vary theories that help us figure out what the right answer is, it's just a waste of time, in my opinion. Really, just it's silly. The fact that you've got real scientists setting up AGI safety boards, you know, it, it's 
it's ridiculous. It truly is. Okay. Now, how do we reduce the risk? Because, because I'm not saying there isn't risk. It could be that every AI, AGI, will be psychopathic, right? That, 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 that might be the case for all I know, right? Just, just like Tracy's question implies as a possibility, it could be true. How do we reduce risks like that? Well, as far as I can tell, there's only one way to do it. We go study AGI. As we start to understand what AGI is, we'll actually have the ability to start talking about, should, do we need a safety program or not? And what would it look like? Because we'll actually have some sort of theory that guides us on how to create such a program. The concern here seems to be that we're going to try to come up with some theory of AGI and we don't really understand it. And then we decide to implement it, not realizing that it's actually the right one. And then, oh, crap, it worked. And now this AGI exists and it happens to be 10,000 times smarter than us. And it's psychopathic. And so now we're doomed. That seems to be the underlying concern that people are trying to address. Does this even seem like a remote, remotely plausible possibility? Could you actually implement an AGI not understanding what intelligence is? right? I, I don't see how you could. To build an AGI, you have to have a theory of intelligence, one that you actually understand in your head before you implement it. If you had one, it would guide you on whether you have a problem or a risk or not. If you, if you, and you would know what the risks are and what the dangers are, uh, or at least have inklings of it. If you don't have a good theory of, of intelligence in your mind, then you're not in danger, <laughs> from an AGI because you won't be implementing it anytime soon, which is why the correct response to AGI safety isn't an AGI safety program. It's the study of AGI. It's the study of intelligence. It's trying to actually understand what intelligence is. That is our AGI safety program. So you don't want to put a hold on AGI studies until we have a safety program. AGI studies is the AGI, is the AGI safety program. That's what it is. Now, let me give a couple exceptions. I'm kind of downplaying the idea of AGI safety programs, but there's actually a few exceptions. So first of all, let's take Elon Musk's AGI safety program called OpenAI. We've talked about this in our podcast about uh, deep reinforcement learning. Now, I don't actually think OpenAI is doing anything that's going to lead to AGI. I think they're on the wrong path altogether. But the underlying thought behind OpenAI, I can agree with, which is study AGI and have it be done by, in a way that's open, where all the research is available to everybody. And we can receive criticism from the outside and everybody sees what's going on. And if there is some sort of problem that we're missing, someone will, will see it, understand it, criticize it, come up with a better alternative. Okay, so instead of doing behind the doors studies, we try to study intelligence as openly as possible because there is a potential danger there. And we try to leave the door open for discussion constantly. If that's what you mean by AGI safety program, then I am all on board with your AGI safety program. That, that sounds like a perfect AGI safety program to me. I've heard another one that I could agree with. It said something like this, that the safety protocol is that AGIs are people, so we should not be cruel to them. Now, I don't know what that means in the case of an AGI. You know, our AGI is going to be, they're going to have possibly feelings very alien to us. So I don't know what would count as cruel or not. But the general, if, if all you're doing is saying, don't be cruel, whatever that means to the AGI, and that's our safety protocol, 
then I've got no problem with it. You've got a good safety protocol, you know, spot on. I, I think the person who said this to me said, um, make sure that any sincere attempt at building an AGI, that there's lots of sociability with it, that it has a chance to be around lots of people. Okay, great. If that's your safety protocol, I've got no problem with that. That would be a decent safety protocol. That's probably a worthwhile idea. Outside of those, I doubt that you couldn't come up with an AGI safety protocol. <laughs> I, I think that we just exhausted our level of knowledge with those two suggestions right there. And I think we're done. I think we've now fully explored the possibilities of AGI safety, and there's nothing else at the moment to say. I should also note, Stuart Russell has a very interesting AI alignment, value alignment uh, proposal, which by the way, for narrow AI is really good and deserves attention. So I'm not trying to downplay it, but I doubt it has anything to do with AGI. He thinks it has to do with AGI, so he always puts it in context of AGI. But since he doesn't understand the difference between narrow AI and AGI, what he's really talking about is a narrow AI safety value alignment uh, program. And it's probably really good what he's come up with. It, basically, what it boils down to is that the, the value that gets assigned to something isn't determined up front but is uh, determined by how humans react to it. Instead of in real AI with deep reinforcement learning and things like that, you have to very carefully pick what your reward system is because the AI will cheat and go after that reward any way it can, right? So he's saying that instead of having it be given a strict static value, that the value is determined through an ongoing interactions with the human. As far as narrow AI goes, I think that's a great, value alignment program. I think that that should be explored further. He actually has worked out some of the mathematics of how it would work. I just doubt it has anything to do with universal explainers at all. So I don't think it, it's even viable as an AGI safety program. But you know, if I'm wrong, then great, go study that in terms of narrow AI. And then at some point when we actually start to understand AGI, we'll see that, that it's valuable or we'll see that it's not. So, but it should really be studied not based on AGI, safety, but on AI safety. It, it can be justified on that grounds and we don't need anything else. Basically, this is my answer to Tracy then in terms of her question. There is potential problems. And the very fact that we have humans that are psychopathic, the very fact that we have humans that are narcissistic and therefore damaging to people around them. Yeah, it's, it's possible that we'll have to worry about that with AGIs. I'm not ruling that possibility out. We don't know how to address it meaningfully at the moment. And that's why what we should really do is we should just try to study AGI. We should just try to understand the problem space better. And I think that, you know, I, let, let's not even rule. I mean, for all I know, an oh crap moment will happen. But I don't think it's very plausible. I, I think that that would require some gigantic level of strange coincidences that just doesn't even seem plausible and certainly wouldn't be a reason for why we would want to study AGI safety first. And even if you did want to study AGI safety first, I don't think you can. So that would be my answer to your question. That's a great answer. <laughs> I was sitting here looking at the, I, I'm not sure that I understand the difference between narrow AI and AGI, but I think you did actually explain it as, as kind of that, uh, learning through kind of trial and error thing with a person? So I can actually explain it a little bit. I mean, I've been wanting to like write my thoughts down on this better. So at an abstract level, 
narrow AI is everything we do today. So if I make uh, AlphaGo, it's going to get good at playing Go and absolutely nothing else. It will never, you know, bake cookies for you, right? It, it's, it's never going to ever advance beyond exactly what it was meant to optimize. Okay. Basically, every attempt at AI we have ever created to date is narrow AI. AGI is something different. It's an actual universal explainer where the computer can learn anything that we can learn, can do anything we can do. The problem is, is that we don't understand what we mean by that. We we know they exist because we exist, but we don't know even how to define the problem well. Here's what I think I can say intelligently about it at this point. If you really look at how we program AIs, we give it the problem. So think about my my discussion with David Deutsch, where he said it's really about about the problem. We give narrow AIs a specific problem to solve, and then it optimizes that problem. We never really even attempt to do something different. And even if we did, we don't really know how. There is some people trying to research this. There's the problem of open-endedness that is being researched by some actual real researchers. But we're not doing anything super intelligent in that space yet. We've got a long ways to go. The way we even try to think about artificial intelligence today, it's always going to be narrow. I think with a real AGI, if if you were trying to say, what's the difference between them? A real AGI has some means, a real universal explainer, I should say, has some means of being able to learn anything. It can pick up any concept. And then once it's picked up those concepts, it can use those to criticize and to say, well, this contradicts that. It can refine its concepts. It can use whatever concepts it currently has to try to understand a new concept. If Douglas Hofstadter is to be believed, and I don't know if he is or not, he believes that the way intelligence works is that we leap between analogies, or analogy is probably not the best word for it, but, but we, we can see that there is some sort of um, analogous circumstance. He gives the example of like a desktop. So we have a desktop, and I got a desk in front of me while I'm recording this, and it's a wooden desktop. And there are certain conventions that exist with a wooden desktop. It's nice and flat. I can write on it. You know, I mean, I understand in my mind the concept of a wooden desktop. So then we invent Windows for, you know, Microsoft invents Windows and they call it a desktop. The reason why they do that is because what they've created has some sort of analogy between what they've done and what a wooden desktop is. But the analogy is imperfect right? It's, they used, there used to be the joke that, yeah, it's like a desktop if you had one hand tied behind your back and it was only, you know, a two foot large desktop. It, it's kind <laughs> of true, right? It's yeah. the analogy is extremely imperfect, but yeah. the very fact that there was an analogy allowed people to immediately start understanding how to use this computer by just being told this is a desktop. And then they took what they knew about a wooden desktop and they could apply it to a new circumstance that wasn't completely the same, but was the same enough that immediately you started having intuitions about how to use it. And that was the value of of a desktop for Windows was that unlike DOS, where you had to type commands, which were all alien to you and had no analogy to anything in your life, you immediately had this knowledge you could take from a different area of your life and start to apply it. You know, AIs just don't do stuff like that. And AGI will. They'll be able to leap between analogies and 
apply things. And he also makes the case, we need to do a separate podcast with just Douglas Hofstetter. He also makes the case that most scientific discoveries come because somebody decides that this is analogous to that. So he gives the example of waves. When we decided that sound was a wave in the air, like today, if I were to say sound's a wave, like literally sound is a wave is the way you would think of it. Mm-hmm. But back when they came up with that analogy, there was no such thing as a compression wave. They had not been invented. It was that analogy. So they only knew about like waves on the ocean, which is not analogous to how sound works. So the very fact that they decided sound is a wave gave them an intuition of this is how sound should behave. And they weren't right, okay, because they were thinking the regular type of wave, but they were close to right. <laughs> And so it allowed them to form, starting with this analogy that sound is a wave, these things will be true. They discovered which ones were and which ones weren't, and eventually refined the concept of a wave to include different types of waves, including a compression wave. Same thing happened with light, right? The idea that light is a wave. No AI, like we're not even really, if you look at like AI studies, they're not even studying stuff like this, right? (laughs) I mean, other than like Douglas Hofstetter. He tried to study it, but he didn't know how to implement it. So he would come up with these kind of crappy programs that vaguely were similar to his thoughts on this subject. And I've actually got a book by him where he lists the programs and things like that. And they're just not very good, right? It's, it's just, it's hard to even figure out what is it we're trying to implement here. Um, I've got this abstract idea of what intelligence is. And AI is trying to implement everything we can figure out to implement, but we're not really getting at the core of what makes a person intelligent at this point. All right. That's it. That's all I really had. Any other questions or comments on this? No. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands f-o-u-r dash s-t-r-a-n-d-s there's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations if you want to make a one-time donation go to our blog which is fourstrands.org there is a donation button there that uses paypal thank you